The Poetic Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Poetic Podcast. It's the world against us and us against the world. Those of you in favour of these articles, raise your right hands and say aye! Aye! Drama, energy, flamboyance, showmanship, dare I even say a touch of swashbucklery. Of course, that clip was Errol Flynn in 1935's Captain Blood. But all that energy is wrapped up in today's guest. From drama teacher to fronting a band, one-time stand-up comedian to poetic storytelling. Let's jump straight in and meet the fabulous James Scott Howes. James Scott Howes, lovely to meet you. Lovely to be on with you, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it, James. One of the reasons for doing the podcast that we do is for me to be able to just have natter, really, with people who I find inspiring, who are out there in the poetry scene um, doing amazing things. And you're definitely doing amazing things, James. Now, for people who may be new to you and your poetry, could you just tell us all a little bit about you, where you're from? So I'm uh, James Scott Howes and live in Leicester. I've been doing spoken word poetry since the end of 2018. Obviously, it took a the long break during COVID. Um, but previous to that, I'd been in bands in one form or another since I was about 14 or 15. And so the poetry and spoken word stuff really grew out of that. I call my style aggressive positivity because it's without really meaning to, it's very forthright. It can be a little bit shouty on stage. It's very, very energetic. I like to deal with some mental health issues. I like to deal with a lot of things that irk me or that you can't really talk about in a civilized conversation but I always try to make sure that there's a positive aspect to every piece that I do because I don't want to bring people down that's really important to me and even when I'm talking about something very dark or upsetting I always want to find some way of just showing some sort of positive spin on it some sort of solution because I, I don't want people to maybe focus on problematic things that I'm talking about I want them to focus on how we can work through those problems I see so I know having seen you perform um several times now mm. there is a drama and energy to your performance that I've kind of likened to I think a mix between and don't be offended by this Errol Flynn <laughs> that swashbuckling nature of the the energy that Errol Flynn brings and I love that. You love that. Oh, thank God. I wasn't sure if you were going to go, what? (laughs) And meet that with the passion of somebody who I admire greatly, who's a poet, um, someone called Clayton Jennings. Um, Yeah, I know. And yet his poems get millions and millions of views and watches on YouTube. And he's just an amazing poet who talks about mental health and um, is, is in America mostly. But if you catch any of his videos, look for the one called Dear Anxiety, it's absolutely amazing. And if you smush them together, they, they kind of liken me to when I, when I feel the presence of your um, of your 
poetry performances and as you say that aggressive positivity that always seems to have that positive lift at the end yeah that's really important to me because I mean, should we just launch into how this whole thing started? Interestingly enough, so I I would like to talk, like, are you a drama teacher? So I was a drama teacher. I was a mainstream drama teacher for eight years. I got sick of the kind of like the way that the Conservative government was uh, essentially ruining mainstream education. When I started off, the exam was a 10-minute play, and by the end of it, it was an hour-and-a-half written exam, so... I felt like I couldn't be a part of that anymore. And then I've shifted into special needs teaching. But yeah, I was a drama teacher for a long time. I think that certainly comes through, James. <laughs> and then through and then through that journey, great imitation. Wow, you've done your research. Jeez. Yes, I tried, great imitation. I tried to do my research. There's also um, the new sheriff. Is that? Oh, my God. Bloody hell. Wow. That I, I am impressed. You've nardworld me. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Yes. <laughs> wow. I've got you there, haven't I? <laughs> you have. You have got me. So that, that's really interesting that you bring up those two things. Basically, Great Imitation was um, a sort of like a live hip hop band that I had for. We all together. We were together for about ten years. The music was quite like bright and breezy, quite sort of like acoustic indie kind of stuff. And I was rapping, basically. I, I really cut my teeth as a writer doing that. The, a lot of the songs, they started off being quite like observational, sort of, I was really aping Mike Skinner from the streets, talking about the Melton Mowbray where I grew up, the little local club, nights out on the town and stuff like that. But as it went on, I started writing much more sort of like story songs kind of thing like it was obviously influenced by Eminem because everyone is and it was kind of like these like quite elaborate narrative tales like there was this one that I had where there it was about this couple who were kind of like laying in bed at night and the guy had this sort of like murder fancy about the the girl because he he couldn't get the attention from her that he wanted and it was this kind of like if I can't have you, no one will, fantasy. And then it shifted to her perspective where it was her thinking about how cloying and unpleasant his company was and how she just wanted to be further away from him kind of thing. That's where I kind of like learn how to tell a tell a story or put a, a point across in verse, essentially. And then after basically doing hundreds of gigs to, to no one on the on the toilet scene up and down the country, we just kind of like, we, we disbanded, we lost a little bit of heart with it. I first got into music when I was kind of seven or eight in, into metal and I've always been a, a metal head. And um, I joined this uh, band called The New Sheriff, which is amazing that you found that out. And it only lasted for a brief period of time, but we released this EP where, again, all of the songs were the kind of like these narrative short stories and that's where I really got a taste for sort of like telling, making a point through metaphors, essentially, particularly in the new sheriff, because it was very short songs. None of them exceeded two or three minutes. So it was kind of like packing a lot of information into a short period of time, which has gone on to basically be my writing style from that point forward. And that's why attempts to achieve with the poetry give a lot of information in a brief period of time. I kind of like try to make a serious point as entertaining a lens as possible, if that makes sense. 
It does. So did you have um, vinyl records out? I'm a vinyl record fan, and I know, I think you're a vinyl record fan as well. We went, neither of, nothing I've ever done has been successful enough to warrant it, unfortunately. <laughs> you see, I thought I was a great opportunity there to like extend my collection, broaden oh. my horizons, and just go, <laughs> where can I get you from? <laughs> It's not worth it, trust me. <laughs> well, you say that, but you did play Leicester Fringe Festival, didn't you? We did. I mean, in Great Imitation, we played h- hundreds of gigs. In 2010, 2011, we won the National Surface Unsigned competition, beat out kind of thousands of bands, and we we got to play a gig in Budapest at the same festival as Prince, the Zigit Festival, we got a big old prize package, basically, but it just never, we, we could never kind of like get to that next stage where it was kind of, you know, independently uh, successful kind of thing, which, which is a shame. But As long as you enjoyed doing it, that's the most important thing. And as long as you've got some great mem- great memories from doing it as well. So I think that's, that's we, we do poetry now, right? I mean, none of us are ever going to become like, n- we're never going to be signed up and become millionaires overnight being poetry. Right. We, we, it's not why we do it. So that's, that's why. Now, I also know you're incredibly fit, James. <laughs> <laughs> Moving around the stage, trying to t- try to lock on to you. Where is he now? Oh, he's over there now. Now, you ran the Yorkshire Marathon um, for the Stroke Association. Because the only time you'll catch me running a marathon is if there was a Greg's at the end of it, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so a friend of mine's dad just kind of out of the blue had a stroke while he was driving his car and ended up crashing into a bollard. And it was really kind of like he was a, a very fit um, older gentleman. And he'd taken care of himself forever, had a very strict sort of like organic, non-processed food kind of diet. You know, he lived a really healthy, like relatively simple life, but due to really kind of unknown factors, he had a stroke. And it obviously that was devastating to my friend. It was devastating to him. He never fully, fully recovered as as far as I know. The year before in 2015, I went to the Yorkshire Marathon to watch a friend of mine run it. And there and then I decided, right, I'm going to do it. So I, I trained for a year and I did it. And it was the first 20 miles. Well, thank you very much. The first 20 miles weren't too bad because I'd put a lot of training in. And the last four, whatever it was, were hell. It was <laughs> awful. Because <laughs> the last part of it was pretty much uphill. It was terrible. I like the fact that you say, like, just casually, the first 20 miles. I'm like, the first 0.2 miles for me would be hell. <laughs> <laughs> and it would just go go worse, get worse from that moment on. <laughs> It was a year's worth of training, though. Do you know what I mean? Like, if that year and the and the first bit hadn't been at least relatively easy, that would have been a very wasted year. Do, we, do you think we'll see you doing any more marathons? No, it's way too much effort. It's so much effort. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how many years I've got left. I don't want to waste any more of the New York marathon training. Yeah, I, I mean, well, but there's a huge commitment to doing it, isn't there? Like you said, yeah. you have to train for a year. And then, of course, you're trying to do it for, you want to make it mean something as well, don't you? So you did that for the Stroke Association for a beautiful cause. And so there's a, there's an awful lot around it. You know, people, I'm sure sometimes people think, oh, you're just going for a run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't know, like after having trained for it for so long, 
it just felt like doing the thing that I've been doing for the whole year just with a load of other people. Like, it, <laughs> it really wasn't as dramatic as I imagined it being. It was just... You're right, though. The, the pressure of all the people who'd kind of like... Lots of people were kind enough to sponsor me and... You know, we, we, I don't know how much it was, but we raised a good couple of hundred pounds for the Stroke Association. So obviously kind of like their goodwill was kind of coming with me, but it, it felt pretty familiar, to be honest. That's awesome. Now, I will, te- I will confess, I have actually done a marathon. Have you? Congratulations. I have, but I didn't run it. Oh. So I did a poetry marathon. I did a 24-hour poetry marathon last year. Jesus Christ. And I didn't spend any time at all preparing. <laughs> somebody said to me, because I was having a chat with somebody and they, and we were talking about poetry and they went, how many poems have you got? And I, I, I've got this many, I got a lot. Because mostly I live in the, the virtual space on social media, right? So when you when you say, you know, it's like doing what you were doing anyway, but just with a lot of people, that's how I found going from social media to doing standard, you know, spoken word performance yeah. events. I'm suddenly doing what I do anyway with a lot of other people who are doing it. Yeah. And somebody said, well, you should do a 24-hour marathon if you've got that. Because And then I looked on YouTube and I realised I had got 24 hours worth of poetry. Um, and so I just sat down on Friday, I made myself a cup of tea, <laughs> and I just kept going for 24 hours. And it was absolute nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> because, because you really suddenly realise, like, you go... Actually, actually, if I had prepared for this, it probably would have been a lot better. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> suddenly, at, suddenly at five in the morning, you, you're just going, do you know, I'm a bit peckish, but how am I going to like leave and go and get myself something to eat and then come back because I can't stop the stream? <laughs> so, did, you not, did, you, did you not need the toilet? I did need the toilet. I did I, only a couple of times. I will tell you. Uh, I can't get drinks too many, but I was. I did do a. I'll be right back. So right. Okay. I'm just, like, just like saying I'm just switching to poetry books or whatever, and I'm just. Oh. I'll be back in a few minutes, uh, and then I'll play one of my videos or whatever, and then, and then come back. But yeah, but I did do the full the full twenty four hours. Anyway, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you, James. Now. This is interesting for me. It's just like there's um you can almost see a, a linear path, can't you, going from life experiences to performing in a band. So you're getting that stage confidence. Mm. Not that anybody ever gets stage confidence changed, but you know, you learn to live with you learn to live with the nerves and all of that sort of stuff. And then you interested in the writing of it, you're performing, yeah. and you're getting stuff out there. So how did poetry, how did you then make the shift from poetry? To poetry, I should say. So the bit that there's no evidence of on social media and never will be is that I had a very brief uh, stand-up career. So, Are you sure about that, James? Because we might talk about that in a minute. Oh, really? No, I'm just joking. I was going to say My heart dropped then. So I... Um, play the clip, don't worry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so glad. <laughs> so before Great Imitation, actually, I spent a year living in Edinburgh doing my teacher training. And obviously the stand-up scene there is, is everywhere. There's more stand-up and more theatre than kind of anything else. It's something I'd always been really tempted to do. Then I did a five-minute open mic. And again, it was like this narrative thing about getting nervous 
approaching women in a pub and it went really, really well. And then I did another set, went really, really well. And then I did a third set and it was awful. It bombed. And the loudest sound in the world is that of no one laughing. It was horrific. I lost the nerve there and then to to try it. I did try it again a couple of years later. One really good show, another terrible show, and I've never gone back to it since. But it did give me that taste for kind of like standing in front of a crowd talking. I found like I really enjoyed that. And what I liked about the stand-up was that you could make a serious point in a non-serious way. So that idea combined with the with the being in the bands is kind of like what drew me towards the poetry because you can be funny or you can be serious or you can be daft or you can do all of those things. It, it's, it's what I wanted from performance. And also I like the fact that I can just do it myself. It was that combination of factors where the bands had never quite worked out for one reason or another. And doing the stand-up was great when it went well. It was soul-crushing when it didn't. But then with the poetry, it's like you don't have to get a specific response. So if you do stand-up and no one laughs, you failed. Whereas I've done poetry in the post where there's been a line that I thought was funny, and but no one's laughed, but that, that's okay because maybe they didn't realise it was supposed to be. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe I just didn't deliver it very well. It isn't an outright failure. You can move to the next part and hopefully kind of like, you know, find a different part that connects with people. Does that make sense? It does. Now, I've had it explained to me a few times, and I I think I agree with it myself in the sense that when we're performing um, spoken word poetry, often we're very familiar, probably overly familiar with the material. Quite often in the audience, that they're hearing it for the first time. And so I've had that experience like that you've had sometimes and it's important I think to remember that you've got to give the audience like time to catch up with yeah. where you are in your mind otherwise you'll just go I didn't work I'm going to rewrite it you know and you're going it did work everyone's just maybe 30 seconds behind where you are and they're still processing absolutely and, and it's like everyone receives things differently you know what is like a a, a, a pithy observation to you might actually be quite a standard thing to that other person that doesn't really warrant a big response you know what I mean or like you know I have found that kind of like dependent on really small quirks in the delivery that can really kind of like alter the meaning and the way that the crowd receives it way more than you think it would yeah and I've noticed that do you when you're doing your performance do you adjust your performance depending on the vibe of the evening yeah be conscious of it Oh, I'm very conscious of it. So when uh, I think we last performed together was the Men's Mental Health um, Charity in Worcester. I remember um, you jumping up onto your chair, James, towards <laughs> me. And I thought, I, I fancy my chances more than yours, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to, um, head, to co-headline that event with Jemima Hughes, who for the first time ever in in her entire career, was too ill to perform. And she'd written a a piece specifically for that, so she was gutted she couldn't make it. So I ended up being the de facto headliner that day. And as you remember, Jay, it was a very kind of like, very serious, very sombre affair. 
rightly as well, because it was such uh, such an important um, topic and a lot of people sharing some really harrowing, uh, intimate stories and details. And then I started off doing um, a piece, which I think do later um, about men's mental health called uh, Hell I Won't Die On. And then I kind of sense that even though it is a very heavy piece, it is quite a dark piece, there was kind of like some some more levity in the rooms. You know, people were picking up on some little bits of kind of like subtle humour or, or, or wordplay in it. And I felt like just in that sort of like symbiosis you get with the audience, they were kind of like, I felt like they were kind of like signaling to me that they wanted things to kind of like have a little bit of a lift. So on the spur, I changed it from being a much more somber set. Cause I basically got an A set and a B set. The A set has somber and more serious stuff in it, but make, basically the middle chunk of it is much lighter stuff with, it, it's got like punchlines, I'm not sure it goes far as jokes, but it, it's, you know, there are funnier lines in it. Uh, and then there's the B set, which is much more kind of like serious. And it kind of like on the spur, I sort of switched it to that. And it, it did go across well, because I think we built up collectively so much kind of like tension and, and catharsis that it, it needed somewhere to go at that point. So, yeah. And, and that's something that you do as well. You, you tailor to the crowd. Yeah, it was, I remember that night. It was a tough night for me, if I'm honest. It's the first time that night where I've struggled to get my last poem out. In fact, I didn't do my final poem because the, the, the subject matter was just so close to my life experience that I just got too much. So I was so pleased when, when you came on. And I think you're right, absolutely right. There was a, everybody in the room was kind of full, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the time was full and it was just like, Right, we, we 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 know we we know what the evening's about, but now we need to just bring it, um, just bring it to a reality. And it was great. It was great that you did that. So yeah, thank thank you for that. Because I really, honestly, I've never struggled before. I really struggled on that night, um, just to get my poetry out. I actually have video evidence of that moment of of you. Do you? I do. Yeah, of you saying, yeah, that's enough for now. And I really felt that moment because. Maybe it's worth pointing out for your listeners, as well as doing the poetry stuff, I have a little side gig filming short promotional videos for poets and artists and anyone who wants one, basically. And I was lucky enough to be asked to film a promo for that event. And so that's why I wasn't just creepily filming from the crowd. But yeah, I I have that bit of footage of you saying that's enough for now. I I could really see it. And because I've filmed you before and you're a very confident performer I think you deliver really well really clearly and there was a lot of um uh, like cracks in your voice that I'd not heard before so it, it I could definitely see that it was getting a bit overwhelming for you yeah I almost didn't go but um but we, but we don't we did it um like you say you had to step up and to just take the night and, and headline the night and you did an awesome you did an awesome job uh, so it was great let's talk about your um collaboration with Jemima now, yes. by the time this is out, people will have heard Jemima's podcast. Jemima's been on the show. Tell us about how you managed to do the. Um, how did that come about? Your because Jemima's Jemima's an awesome performer who talks about probably I think similar things that we do. How did you? How did you two meet? How did that collaboration come about? Listen so, to his name. I think it was called. Yes, listen to his name. You know your stuff very well. That's <laughs> very. Cool. 
So Jemima and I met at the tail end of 2018 at a Peterborough night, and she performed one or two sets just before me, and she absolutely, you know, she just blew my mind. And obviously, anyone who's seen her knows that she's just this incredible force of nature. At the time, I had my own poetry night in Leicester. It only lasted for, for three events just before COVID. Oh, it must have been 2019. Yeah, it's 2019. Sorry, not that that's relevant. Um, but we, but I, I asked her if she would headline my night. And she said yes, and we kept in contact. We swapped contact details, but then COVID happened. It never took place. And we always kept it a little bit in contact over the course of lockdown and just see where she was going. And she was responsible for getting me on a a night at Cherry Reds in Birmingham. And I performed my piece called Listen, Lads, which is something that um, I wrote to basically call out other straight men who see um, male on female sexual violence as being a woman's problem. It's something that as I've become older and become more aware of what the world is like for women, it's something that I've become increasingly concerned about because I've realised that in the past I haven't behaved in a way that I'm proud of. You know, I've never been one to like catcall or obviously I've never kind of like done anything. But at the same time, I know that I've not prevented other people from doing things. I've not said things when I know that they've been making girls feel uncomfortable and and women feel uncomfortable. And so that's something that um, I generally start a lot of my sets with because it sets a precedent that... I want to talk about things that perhaps other male poets aren't talking about at that point. And Jemima uh, saw that piece afterwards. We talked about the potential of a collaboration and she has a piece called His Name Is, which is in reference to someone who uh, abused her in the past. In discussion, we decided we realized that really we were essentially talking about the same thing, but I was talking about it from a male perspective, she was talking about it from a pe- female perspective, and then we ended up having a shared stage slot at um, the Access All Areas Festival last year in Leicester. And we decided that that would be the perfect opportunity to create this collaboration to use key pieces of both of our poems, bring it together into this one collaborative piece. Yeah, and now I'm going to put a link to it because I think there's a video of you both performing that at the Cherry Blossom Cafe in October. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'll put a link to that so people can listen to that. And then I do have um, a performance of you doing a YouTube performance of A Hill I Won't Dial, which which we've mentioned a couple of times. So I wonder if this is a, a good time for you to tell us that performance piece. Absolutely. The world has no interest in sensitive men unless you happen to manage to leverage it into poems, paintings, or songs, movies, slow-mo motion cap photos or drawings that others can use as a lens to view themselves through. Why do you think so many songs vividly paint heartbreaks? Because no one wants to know a man's sadness unless there's a catchy melody attached to it. But whether you're tough or timid, placid or livid, 
open or closed. Open means open to mockery, so we remain closed. Coping in closed, when we close what we loathe, it's the part that can't cope, it encroaches on hope and then hopelessness grows. How many men do you think live rigid in cognitive dissonance? But stiff upper lips and slight eyes are no disguise for our listlessness. Slyly guiding high rise heights, granite in skyline, idly wondering what it might be like to bow out with a swan dive rather than say, I can't do this. And when the shame weighs so greatly upon our minds, we'd rather open up our skulls and our mouths to excise what's inside. Something's wrong. But there's nothing wrong with us. There's something wrong in the way that we've been brought up. Look, men can't even be friends without snickering and dignity. Have to be circumspect with any kind of connection. Laugh too hard or find them interesting. Left alone, there's no chance. How long before someone pipes up with romance? Or calm down, it's a joke. You take everything too far. It's a joke like most men's feelings are, but they aren't. Because how we feel, how we cope with what we feel entirely defines whether we're perceived to be real in our own or other's eyes, but I'm a man and I cry all the time. Sometimes I cry when I'm sad and staring out of a window distractedly, other times when I'm overstimulated and violently. My eyes prickle when I reminisce. 2001 emo classic thrown up in shuffle by a playlist. And when I figured out what was about to happen to Lenny, I had to take a break because I couldn't see the page. Thought hits and I begin again when I figured that George did what George did to be a friend. Look, I am real, despite my overwhelm. And I am real when I'm asking for help. I am real regardless of having been told otherwise, and I am more real for having cried. Long ago, I decided I would not die on a hill that someone else defined, so you can keep your definition of being a real man, and I shall live and die by mine. Thank you. How was that for you? We're doing it not in front of a live audience. Exactly. I, I, I thought that. And you were sitting down. People should know that you sit down. It's not natural for you to sit down and do poetry, I would imagine. I'm not much of a sitter downer anyway. Right. I, I got that impression. I got that impression, James. And that wasn't just when you're filming filming all of the, the poetry events that you do and you're moving around and getting all the best shots. So, yeah, that was beautiful. So tell me a few things about that. Now, I'm in a strange position where I've lived on both sides of the gender divide. So a lot of that speaks to me from both perspectives. It's quite a passionate piece. Where did the inspiration that specifically come from? And how did, did it just come out in one session? Was it something that you wrote over time? How did you build that performance piece? So it, was, it actually came from a meme that someone shared on Facebook, believe it or not. And someone said it, it was something like one of the most derided groups of people on earth is the silly man because silly men are, see, are, are seen as having as having no practical value it was something like that it was a lot pithier and um, but that really struck me because i have no practical skills of any sort whatsoever 
wouldn't begin to know how to put up a shelf or what to do with a drill. You know, the, these things that give men value, essentially. That might sound like a really kind of like retroactive view of masculinity, but it's, it really does still hold true now um, in my own personal experience. And people are very comfortable with telling you that if you can't do these things, there is something lacking in you as a man. And so I started thinking about the fact that as a sensitive man, which I am, I always have been, something it's something which I was embarrassed about forever. And then I decided that I had to um, become comfortable with that. I don't really have a value unless I can create art with it. Because no one, no one's interested in just sitting down and having a conversation with you as a sensitive man, or you, you have no value unless you can put it into something. And it's the irony that in our art, we want people to be emotionally raw and, and sensitive and et cetera, but we don't want that in the people that we're around. Remember talking to a really, really good friend of mine um, last year, who I've known for kind of 20 years kind of thing. And he was, he was going through quite a tough time and he started telling me a little bit about it. And then he stopped himself and went, oh, I'm, I'm not opening up to you or anything. And so it was at that point where I realized kind of like a little bit like with the listen lads thing, I felt like I had to say something about it because, but at that point where you go, okay, well, I fully identify as a man, but the things that give men value are all absent from me. What do I do about that? And that, that's something which through art, for expression, through, you know, various existential crises I've, I've become comfortable with. And I thought that if I can describe a little bit what that's like to some strangers, hopefully that will make sense to someone. That, that was kind of the aim. In terms of writing it, so my writing process generally tends to be, I'll come up with an idea and then that just sort of like ticks around in my brain until I get a key line for it or a really specific idea that kind of like it, it kickstarts the process. So I've had ideas ticking around my brain for literally years that I've not been able to quite pull the trigger on because I've just not had that moment where I go, oh, okay, so it could work like this. Um, and a lot of my ideas, weirdly, a lot of those lines come when I'm running so I'm still really keen on kind of like, yeah, I'll, I'll run two 5Ks a week just to kind of like stay healthy. And I find it quite meditative. So at a certain point, usually about halfway through, that's where kind of like my, my brain's really relaxed and, and things just start kind of like popping into my head kind of thing. And that's what happened with A Hell I Won't Die On. Just that idea that the world has no interest in sensitive men unless you happen to manage to leverage it. That phrase just appeared in my head and I was like, oh, okay, I can write it now. So over, I, I think two like longish writing sessions in two days, that just all sort of like blurted down onto the page. So I'm sensing, is that a process that is probably akin to songwriting? So this might get me kicked out of the Poetry Cool Kids Club but I don't know anything about poetry. Neither do I, so don't worry. We're, we're in good company. Because <laughs> I have, I've never 
formally read a poem, like a classic poem. Like I've read some of the works of some of the fantastic, amazing people that I've met on my journey, but I don't, if you were to ask me to name my favorite classic poem, I wouldn't even know where to start. It drives my mum nuts. She's an English teacher and she's a huge fan of classic poetry and literature and stuff like that. And she said to me on many occasions, this is something you do. Why don't you learn something about it? But I, I don't get it. To me, it's like a it, it's like a book of song lyrics that someone's not singing. So that is exactly how I, I write songs. It, that's Yeah, that's exactly how it's always worked. Will be kind of like an idea will pop into my head. Like this is a subject I want to write about. And then at some point further on, one line or one image or, or something will just spark that process off. So yeah, that's really, um, that's exactly how it is. Good to hear you, James. I mean, I can highly recommend the Oxford Book of English Verse. Okay. <laughs> if you really want to explore John Gower, William Landland or William Dunbar from the 1300s to the 1500s. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't I'm, do that. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good as well. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's so many, like, it's, it's two metaphors and... Like, so I like something to have a visceral impact. Exactly. Like, I want to understand what what I'm experiencing. Yeah, plus it's contemporary as well, though, isn't it? It's like we want, or I want to connect with the audience. I want to connect to the listeners, which is why sometimes I may change my poem slightly or the way I perform my poem slightly, because... The primary overriding factor is I want people to understand what I'm trying to say, even though I'm telling it through this extended metaphor, if you like, whatever a metaphor is, uh, even though I'm trying to tell it in a a way that that people can relate to at an abstract level, because I think people will listen to it then and then go, oh, right, they've told a story. Now, how does that relate to my situation? Mm. And I think that's what happens quite a lot in poetry, I think. If you're not doing that, if you're not attempting to connect with people uh, I'd not be entirely sure what it is you are doing like I I, I don't know I, I can't imagine what you'd be doing otherwise because it's like that thing of standing in in you know standing in front of a group of people and, and talking and speaking if you're not attempting to make some sort of connection sort of like act as some sort of mirror to, to that person's experiences in, in some way, shape or form, I, I can't imagine what that would be. That actually kind of like is kind of relevant to the first ever gig that I did. I'd wanted to do it for quite a while and I couldn't find any poetry nights. Um, so I was like, I'm going to set one up. So I had a friend who had a small shop. I decided to set up a poetry night because I wanted to perform it essentially. And by that stage, I'd been doing bands for kind of 15, 16, 17 years. I am very confident on stage. I really like speaking in front of people. Really? It hadn't come across, James. Not at all. (laughs) Weirdly. Hadn't picked up on that. Not for a moment. (laughs) Weirdly, sometimes that's when I feel most at home. Like, I can feel really, really awkward. I can lack confidence. But that can come sometimes in a more sort of like small group basis. That comes when I don't know what to do. Whereas 
on stage, I always know what to do. <laughs> well, <laughs> most of the time, I always know what to do. And so I set up this poetry night in Leicester, and my intention was always to make my first performance a headliner. Really bad idea, because I'd never been to a poetry night before, let alone, I, I had nothing. What I had was my experiences of being in bands. And so I thought, well, that's bound to translate. So we had really fun, phenomenal poets performing. And just before I went on, this uh, lady called Emma Ireland performed. And if you don't know her, Jay, you'd absolutely love her stuff. I'll send you a link to some of her videos. She's phenomenal. And she did this piece about the NHS and, you know, had some of the people in the crowd in tears. And it was, it was a really beautiful moment. And then I got up and I did spoken word versions of some songs I've been doing in this metal band that I was in at the time. And it was very, very metaphor heavy. It was very complicated. It was very fast and very wordy. And no one understood a word of it. It was 11 minutes of people just being confused. And after a while, kind of bored, I realized I'd really, really overshot. I'd gone into something way too confident about something that I didn't understand anything about it was one of the times where I really wasn't proud of what I'd done but that was because I hadn't done what was necessary and kind of like learn about what it what it looks like about how to connect with people in that way I just assumed that one thing would apply to the next and it really didn't so that was a, a real moment of learning my craft in the most possible public humiliating way I possibly could have done. There's <laughs> one way to approach the problem. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly the stupidest. <laughs> well, it's whatever you did, it's certainly paid off, hasn't it? Now, but I get the point about connecting with the audience because I'm quite a big advocate these days for, I'm, and I'm seeing quite a, a growth in it, people performing poetry in their native language. Um, Love. I only speak one language and some people would argue that I struggle with that sometimes. <laughs> but I think it, the, the real power of a poem for me comes across when someone can tell it to you in a language you don't speak. And yet not only do I kind of follow what they're saying, but I'm, I'm drawn along the current of their emotion with it. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm free. I don't know what you're saying, but I feel it somewhere deep inside, spiritually even. We should mention that you were a vocalist. Uh, do you play instruments, anything like that? Badly. I, like, I, I know four chords, not well. Okay, so finding that emotion in a song is really, really important, isn't it? Yeah, it's, the, the day after that first performance, I was talking to um, my fiancé and, you know, I was really disappointed because I'd put a lot of emotion into it. But what I'd done was I disguised it through metaphors and, you know, like I'd really kind of like hidden my messaging. And I thought that um, I would, I, I thought that I would connect with people without having to be honest enough about what I wanted to say. Because I'd, I'd come off the back of a pretty troublesome mental health episode. I wanted to get up and perform, but I wasn't really ready to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about. I didn't, I, I didn't have a framework for describing them properly yet. So I was kind of like trying to do a, a halfway thing where I was going to kind of like 
I thought I'd be able to like get the emotions out, but without having to give any of the specifics of what I was really talking about. Um, and during that conversation, um, Steph said to me, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to connect with people. And she says, well, you're going to have to make it simpler then. You're going to have to make it clearer. Simple isn't the right word. You're going to have to, it, 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 you're going to, have to make it clear. You're going to have to let people into what you're talking about. Otherwise, that will never happen. And that was kind of like the moment where it all changed. And I was like, right, I, you know, the, I am stopping myself getting what I want out of this. And I immediately went back to the drawing board, scrapped everything, and then started writing um, in a way that was much clearer to people. Because I think the thing that I'd misunderstood was that a lot of the the bands I like, they write in you know, metaphors and et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a, a CD or a vinyl or you're streaming, you can listen to that thing as many times as you like. The vast majority of people are only going to hear your poem once. And you have one opportunity to connect with them, to, I guess, to impress them. And, you know, if everything is kind of like layers and layers of meaning, all, all the meaning is lost. Yeah, there's a, I think it's about making it accessible. I don't think simple is, is a bad word. I think simple is a good word. Like, I, I, your poetry is very accessible. It's very direct. And I think mine's quite direct, and I, and I know that Jemima's is quite direct, and that's where the storytelling really kicks in, I think, because I think, and, and then weighing in with that, sometimes that we were saying earlier that the audience is often a little bit behind us. Yes. So if they've got to work out the meaning of stuff and the metaphors and the stuff, they're going to be even further behind. So, right, are we ever going to see a book by James Scott Howard, or is that not how James Scott Howard rolls? Uh, J- James would love to roll that way, but and um, so I, I can be very confident about the things I'm confident about, and I can be startlingly lacking in confidence in the things that make me nervous. And one of the things that really makes me nervous is someone reading my stuff because when I'm performing it, I can put the emphasis where I want it to go. And I suppose it's a control thing. So the idea of someone reading my stuff and judging it without me being there kind of freaks me out a little bit. And I I, I went to, uh, I, I entered myself into the Verve um, open call for, for authors last year. And um, it wasn't the, the right book for them. And it's kind of like, that you know because it was the kind of like the first time I'd, I'd tried anything like that and it you know it was a bit of a knockback it's kind of like knocked my confidence a little bit with that so it's something that I'd love to do but it's something that kind of like makes me way more nervous than a person who'd seen me perform live might think I would be because it's yeah it's like almost like giving up that control of the piece where you know if someone were to buy a book and then they read it in a certain way, it might come across in a way that I didn't expect it to. And that, I don't know, losing that ownership over something so personal is quite a scary thought. So it was a really long way about saying, hopefully one day. <laughs> I, I echo all of those. And I also entered the birth thing and, and they were just like, no, thank you very much. <laughs> just like, loves. Uh, but do you know what? Mine still got printed. But I, I know what you mean, because I, I sort of procrastinated for a long time with mine because, and I think that's the difference between page poetry and performance poetry, because 
for me, there's a permanence to the page poetry that when I did this book, I literally had to say, what is not the final, but what is the version of this poem um, that's out? Because my fear, as I already said, I like to change my poem or the vibe of my poem. And my worry, and I've said this before in a podcast, that someone's going to have my book and they, well, hopefully they're going to have my book, love, £10, don't worry. You know, just, you know, anyway, I'm not, I'm not, for sure. but, but they're going to be re- listening to me and then go, excuse me, that's not the line. It's just, this is the line. Can you imagine? I'd just be like mortified. I know it's not the line. That's a whole nother level of anxiety to to a book that I've never considered before. (laughs) That's such a good point. Gifted it to you. So it is is on the cards. And um, I don't know why. I've I've got a sense we're probably going to see. You've got a YouTube channel, for instance? So, or a social media channel, I should say. It doesn't have to be YouTube, others are available. <laughs> well, so I have, I, I think I have one video on YouTube, um, as you mentioned before, A Hill I Won't Die On, which the last time I looked had 14 views. You've got a couple on YouTube, James. <laughs> oh, God. And some stuff. No, just kidding about the standard. Again, it's that kind of like, so we've, Great with great imitation, we you know people really enjoyed it live, and then whenever we would release music, it just the, there was a real distinct lack of interest kind of thing, and um, so I have this kind of like way more deep seated nervousness about putting out content than is probably sensible for someone attempting to promote themselves because. With the live stuff, you know, I can, I can be there, I can get that feedback. And as we talked about before, I can tweak things if I feel like it could be going better. Whereas when you put out, as you said, that final product, it's just there for people to engage with or not engage with. So it's kind of like, I think I'm really holding back from doing that stuff through fear it's just going to disappear. But there's a dimension of you that isn't that you like there is to me, like there's to other that you can't bring to the printed page, isn't there? Absolutely. Just like it's a whole performance thing, yeah. you know. And then, but I'm I'm sure. I mean, Jemima proved that it can be done, didn't she? So you know, yeah. do you have some favourite contemporary poets? Do you read? You've said you don't particularly read poetry, but do you have poets that you follow that that you admire their work of? Um, that's not a leading question, James. But in any. Yeah. So um, have you heard of a uh, fantastic poet, um, Jay Rose? <laughs> I love your stuff. So, like, yes. So I, I'm very privileged. I get to go up and down uh, the country and, and perform a lot, which is an amazing position to be in. Got to see the work of um, and become friends with some incredible people. I love your poetry. Um, no, I do. It's you know, it's very kind of like it's very raw, but it's it's very like I, I always find your work quite pretty. Like there's something really kind of like I think there's something quite beautiful and quite fragile about your stuff, and uh, which I really like. And I think that's a really difficult um, balance to to hold. But I think you succeed in it really well. And there's moments of just like real kind of like gut wrenching rawness, which I really enjoy. And um, I love Jemima is um when I saw Jemima, 
and it really changed um, how I wanted to write. As you said, that directness, because I was still kind of like, still reeling from that first disastrous performance. I, st- I wasn't exactly sure what my stuff was going to be like in a saw Jemima and it all clicked into place. I was like, okay, so that's how it's done. And, you know, I mean, she, I've, I must've watched Jemima perform 10, 11, 12 times. And if anything, she just gets better. Um, Claire Tedstone is another massive favorite of mine. Um, are you going to have Claire on at any point? Couldn't possibly say. Couldn't possibly say. I do admire Claire. I do admire Claire's work very, very much. Claire, um, so if anyone um, is is listening who isn't familiar with Claire, she has a really, really unique style where she, uh, she'll get, get up and essentially do like a medley of poems. So if she's given 15 minutes, she will do 15 minutes worth of stuff. And it, it's kind of like, it's lots of different bits which are seamlessly seeded together. And yeah. she has very sort of like, she stands stock still, but the way that she kind of like uses her arms and her facial expressions, it is absolutely like beguiling. You cannot take your eyes off of her. It's it's almost like a witch trial. That's what it looks like. It looks like someone who's been accused of witchcraft and they're defending themselves from being burned. That's how I've always seen Claire's work. Let me tell you, so I met Claire at Verve and um, my son was performing at Verve for the first time. And he performed at Verve and then Claire performed. And at the end, I said to him, I said, how was it? Who did you like and who did you like? And he said, I really like the crazy mad woman. <laughs> I've told her that. I've told her that. But it was, but the yes, I agree with you. There's such a passion and it's bottled up and, and oh, it just yeah. comes out the moment she starts talking. Go on. Who else have you got? Chris Oliver, who mostly works around um, the less, uh, sorry, the Nottingham scene, he's kind of like got this genius wordplay. It's a really unique style um, that I've never heard anyone else really do. It's it's kind of like it's really hard to describe. It's like it's it's really kind of like uplifting, but at the same time, like, the intricacy of the wordplay is very studied and very daring, and because it's the sort of thing that could be missed very quickly. If you don't pick up on it, you're not going to see how clever his pieces actually are. And it really is like, he is an extraordinary talent. And then as I mentioned before, um, Emma Island, who now has moved to Ireland. And she has this kind of like, a little bit like Jemima, but she's much more kind of like political with her stuff. It is very direct. Um, It's kind of like, very clean, clear, crisp phrasing. She says exactly what she means. She gets in and gets out. And again, that was really, really influential because she is the the person who should have headlined that first night where I performed. And because she's, you know, she is masterful. And she has just a really kind of like magnetic stage presence where she just stands stuck still to really move particularly, you, you can't take your eyes off her. You can't stop. She's so engaging um, and all she needs to do is just be there. Now, I've only seen you at in-person spoken word events. I've not seen you 
at any online events and i think i i think that's i may be wrong but do you where where do you feel most comfortable performing where do you regularly perform like if somebody wanted to see you where would they go typically i have now done my first ever online performance um, at crafty crows thanks to jason conway who is also a fantastic poet that was Um, on the first of feb wasn't it they'd lost a poetry society it was yeah that's correct okay Um, and I have the privilege of uh, doing a feature at Block from the Blue, thanks to Finn Hall on the 6th of March, which will be my second online event. Um, but I am way more comfortable in person. That's where I, it's that connection with people that I just, I absolutely love. Like I can't get enough of it. Um, I don't really have any regulars because Despite being um, a Leicester boy, I don't really perform in Leicester a great deal. I'll kind of go wherever will have me, to be honest. Uh, speech therapy in Nottingham. Um, uh, I think that's the first Friday of every month. And um, I'm featuring there on September the 1st, which is really, really exciting. And um, it is a really like a wonderful night. Uh, it's one of Nottingham's longest running poetry nights if not the longest running poetry night and it really is like an incredible like community event and then my favorite night in Leicester's a new one um newish one called get Malvey, which is run by um lady called samantha oren 13th of may is going to be um my longest ever feature set at about uh 45 minutes she's wow. asked me to, yeah she's asked me to um to be the entire first half of the show, which is just a huge compliment. And that's going to be my only Leicester headline slot for the year. So that's going to be exclusive to Get Malby. But I'll, I'll come, if, if people want to see me perform, give me a slot, I'm there. Absolutely, same. Don't worry, we're all, we're all out going, yeah, we're, we're going away. The one thing I wanted to ask you, as a performer and as a confident performer, what advice could you give to people who probably are more on the writing poetry end and are probably more fearful of performing poetry. Is there any like tips or or thoughts that you could give to them just to help them build their confidence a little? Absolutely. So one thing that I'd love to do is performance workshops for people online or however that would come across. I think the main thing that people need to realise is that you have a right to be there you deserve to be there. Your your story matters. You are important because you can tell when a person gets up and they don't really feel as though they have a right to stand in front of people. And I think that that's a big stumbling block for a lot of people is, should I be here? Am, am I, is my story interesting enough? Have I, you know, am I bringing anything to the table? And the answer is always yes, because everyone's, experience is completely unique this experience of the world and you have something that is worth telling to other people so that would be the number one piece of advice that i would give to to anyone you you deserve to be there and to accept and recognize that fact that is about 90 percent of the battle the other thing um is to know your material and I'm not saying everyone should learn their material off by heart. Um, I like to do that, but that's because I need the freedom to move. I can't stand there. I can't be restricted. 
to to look at something that I I've seen amazing performances delivered by people reading from their phones because they know the material they just need the prompt because the thing is if you don't know your material you don't know where to assonate you don't know where to have that pause you don't know where you have like I was it's really cheesy but I call it a mic drop moment like finding that key moment of your piece which is the peak of the action and then you just leave a few seconds to let it you know, disperse out into the crowd before you move on. If you don't know your material well enough, that is impossible. And when you know your material well enough, where you have those moments where you go, you know, this is a moment that I consider to be important. This is a moment that could really mean something to someone. That's where you start to get that real confidence because you think, actually, I have something. Not only do I have something to say, I have a method to say it, which I fully believe will translate that, will translate that experience that I have. The main thing is it, it's an internal battle, like like everything, is that kind of like idea that you deserve your place in, in the world, I think. That completely echoes. I mean, the, the two things that jump to mind to me is, is I hear a lot of poets apologising for their poetry yeah. at the beginning, and I'm like, please don't. Like, we haven't yeah. read it yet, and you're already apologising for it. And the other one is um, not feeling the need to explain everything about the poem, because when we're listening to the poem, we want to we say, how does that apply to us? Sometimes it's important to add, especially if it's, like, historically um factual or something like that you need to put the context i'd say don't feel you have to explain like what the driving force behind the poem was just get on just read the poem that's what we want (laughs) i think the mistake that a lot of open mic poets make is giving very long intros to their poems because and i don't mean this in any kind of way but no one's there to listen to to that people are there to listen to your poem and when you walk on stage, you have about five seconds to grab people. It doesn't matter how you walk on, so long as you walk on authentically, you walk in a, in a way that represents who you are, and then you launch into the thing that needs saying. Giving lots and lots of context before that, I've never seen it work, and it's something I've never seen a headliner do. I've never seen someone open up a feature slot by telling a very, you know, by telling a a lengthy story about the thing they're about to do. They just do the thing. Um, and, and I think that you're guaranteed to get a better response by just going into it. I, I think it's kind of like, I don't like to say rookie error because I think that's really patronising. But, you know, if there is anyone who's, who's listening, you know, please do that. Show people the thing that is your passion, the thing that is the thing that you are there to do, the thing that makes you special. If your poem is good enough, it doesn't really require context in, for the opening piece. Because, you know, you, you can have a piece later on where you say, you know, you can give that little bit more, but, you know, if you're two or three pieces into it and, and the audience feel comfortable with you, then they're more inclined to listen to those parts. And actually it can be really lovely because it bridges it and, and they get to know you better as a human being, as opposed to a performer, but as an opening gambit, it, I don't, I can't really see how it could ever work. 
Yeah, I've seen it myself at lots of different events, so uh, especially first time and on the open mic. But it's the sort of thing that comes with experience, isn't it? It's just like once you've, like you say, once you've done your first performance and it's bombed, I'm not going to dwell on that too long for you guys. But we've all had that experience, and we've we've all had the fear of that moment, that long second that lasts an hour just after you've finished, where you're going. Did they, you know, it's just silent. And, you know, all those things come with experience, don't they? With with learning, you've got to get up there. Like I always just say, just go and do it. Once you've gone and done it, because uh, if not, you'll, ju- you'll just talk yourself out of doing it. There's lots of reasons to not do it. Go and do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And like poetry crowds, um, they are so nice, man. They're, they're, they're lovely. They really are. Like, you know, poetry crowds, will listen to whatever you have to say. It really is like a very special thing. Like, and I think perhaps that's part of what keeps it so niche is that in order to become a part of the scene, there, you know, there really is quite an understanding about what that involves. It's not a medium like, you know, you go to see a band, you can get up, go for a drink, have a chat with you, whatever. You, you can't do any of that. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's kind of like, you know, there's a, quite a, a lot of respect and responsibility that comes with just being in the crowd. Yeah, there is. And plus, plus probably every poet has got a book that they're... <laughs> Not- <laughs> I, really, I really loved your work. Where can I get your book? And mine's... Oh, my, I've got one as well, just in case you're <laughs> I've often said on the podcast that everybody in the poetry community that I've met, when you perform it, are so beautifully supportive. Oh, almost, yeah. almost to a detrimental effect, because then you start sending your work off to random strangers, publishing houses, and go, yeah, it's not for us. <laughs> <laughs> you've met people you've never met and you just go but everybody thought it was amazing <laughs> so you mentioned earlier james that um you founded uh, an open mic in leicester was that called bespoke it wasn't your research game is on point <laughs> thank you and i think that was um that was to support the work of mind so is that is that something that's still ongoing do you still run yeah. that so Basically, um, I did three of them, and then the pandemic hit, and I just I never picked it back up again um, because I found that I wanted to perform as opposed to present. To be honest, because that leads me to the question: is to like, what's next for you? What are you working on next in terms of your performance, and where do you want your work? Where do you want to go next? Do you have a Do you have a plan in mind? Do you have thoughts about what you want to do in the future? I'm always writing. Um, I've got two or three on the go at the minute where I'm kind of like in the kind of like splurging out ideas stage. And I have one um, called Palimpsest, which is what a Palimpsest is, is something where the original shape and form has been altered, but traces of its previous state still remain. And it's uh, talking about being a heavily tattooed person, how I've altered my appearance um from the way it originally was but i'm still the person i ever was for better or worse underneath that the the question of where it goes from here it's really nebulous because for the whole time where, where i did the band i was obsessed with being successful it was really really important to me that you know we get to a certain stage and we get this that and the other 
and it never happened with any of them and that really tainted the experience and when you said earlier so long as you in, you know when we were referring to the bands you said oh you know I hope you enjoyed it or so long as you enjoyed it to be honest I kind of did myself out of that a little bit by being very focused on a goal I had no real control over so with the poetry stuff I'm trying not to really have any goals my goal is to enjoy it and and continue having passion for it and continue meeting fantastic people like yourself and just rolling your eyes you are you're fantastic and just to to carry on doing that and if there's no goal in mind then it's not a case of success or failure it's a case of doing something which i love for the length of time that i love it for which i know is a really lame response but i'm quite an obsessive person and if i have you know like with the marathon stuff if i have a goal in mind i have to succeed i have to achieve that goal otherwise it's all it all feels like it's been for nothing and so I don't want to attach a goal to this. Like, you know, when when I didn't get picked up by Verve, I felt really disappointed and it felt like a big old kick in the teeth because without realising it, a goal to get this book published had had appeared and that was like antithetical to the idea of what I wanted to do. So putting anything in place that that counts as as a goal gives it a kind of like a, a success or failure thing that I don't want to apply to this. Because right now it's awesome. I get to travel around. I get to meet fantastic people. I get to do as much performing as I like as a, you know, a, it, it, there's not a band there. There's no one else to rely on practicing. It's just sitting in the car and going over my poems again and again. And that it's really refreshing because I like to work hard and often and you know I want to get to a stage where I think things are as close to being perfect as they possibly can and I'm the only person I need to rely on with that so that's a really kind of like it's really liberating after having worked in you know groups where if one person can't do it if they're if they're busy whatever if things get in the way you can't do anything so it's, it's a really liberating feeling I think it's very admirable. I, I, I have to say, I mean, I, there's an awful lot of rejection in, in the world that we do. So it's very hard, or, or I think you've been very hard, or we be very hard on ourselves, giving ourselves big goals to say, right, I'm going to get published. Oh, I want to do this, or I want to do that. Because there are, there are an awful lot of people doing poetry out there. Just sometimes the universe just doesn't align, you know, for it, it doesn't mean that the, it doesn't, reflect on the individual it doesn't reflect on the poetry it just mean at that moment at that point in time it just wasn't it just wasn't there you know yeah. the, the combination of things uh, and at another moment a minute later it might have been it, really, it might have been so i think it, i think it's a very good it's a very good uh, way of looking at the world and um, plus i want to see you continue to swashbuckle your way through <laughs> <laughs> through the through the poet through the poetry scene but I- Quite swashbuckly. I really like that. I'm going to put that in my bio. <laughs> yeah, don't start wearing a patch or arrow, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But, <laughs> but, but, but the the and um, kind of stuff that I, I think is awesome. So, do you have a poetry of your own choice that that we could close out on? Yeah, I'm going to finish on um, something which was originally um, intended to be kind of like light and sort of like uh, like a little bit silly. Um, 
just kind of like a, a, a funny thing. And then the more I, I the more I wrote it, the more irate I became with the subject matter. And and it's gone from being something which was supposed to be light and silly to being the angriest thing I've ever written. And it's all about trolleys. <laughs> Your trolley problem is whether or not to kill five in order to save a single life. Whereas I have something quite different on my mind. You see, my problem is with people who leave trolleys stray in supermarket parking bays and drive away without giving a single second thought to the fact that them and their kind are almost entirely responsible for the decline of polite society, which sounds dramatic, admittedly, but stick with me you see you don't actually have to put it back i mean there's no fines it's fine you won't receive a grainy noir photo captured on cctv harsh glances or questioning of your moral integrity from anyone except me you will remain demand and reprimand free we all know the truth there is literally no consequence for you. But eight minutes later, there's a car that can't park because you can't be asked, And the hideously underpaid wage slave skillfully maneuvering the unwieldy trolley centipede has to jarder and glunk in the hole. Adding a 33rd segment to the back of the beast attach it and heave because you couldn't spare the extra 83 seconds before you had to leave, you fucking prick. And don't give me job you dementedly deficient disaster don't know about your job but i hate it when people come to mine and make it harder trolley leavers demand to speak to the manager trolley leavers somehow turned sjw into a pejorative now let's break that down to basics personally I would rather read a million slightly self-righteous, misappropriated quotes online than something even vaguely racist. Trolley leavers can be guaranteed to go out to eat, be rude to waiters, harsh to bar staff, and leave the table a tipless disgrace after they scarper. Trolley leavers make my face flush, wanna ball my fist up, extend this digit, and bloody well tell them off. Something like, you helplessly selfish, bellend, blithering, village idiot, dementedly reprehensible dickhead, self-righteous and entitled, entirely vile pissant for whom I have no patience, fucking Brexit voting, Ricky Gervais quoting, you can't make a joke about anything anymore, moaning, just because I don't want to see it on TV, don't make me homophobic, it's no one's fault but their own, that they're homeless, little middle England, hateful daily mail, hapless gammon, hashtag kindness, all lives matter, bastards. I can't say what makes a person good. I don't know enough. But basic consideration has little to do with goodness and a lot to do with not being a cunt. I don't know if you're going to have to edit a bunch of that. <laughs> I just want to just reassure you, I do always put my trolley away. But that is actually based on a study that I read where um, a social psychologist was saying that there is an argument that to be made that people who don't put their trolleys back 
can be technically classed as bad people because it's a social obligation you're not actually obligated to make it's something you could do but it's not something you have to do there's no punishment to it so if you are only willing to do good things because otherwise you'll be punished you could be technically classed as a bad person i just don't want to be called a cunt (laughs) (laughs) i'll take the psychology as well (laughs) james scott house thank you very much thank you so much it's been wonderful thank you very much indeed cheers james bye If you are in the UK and you can find him on land or at sea, I highly recommend going to see James in person. You will not be disappointed. And if you're on YouTube, you can tune in to see James perform his passionate poem, A Hill I Won't Die On. Link in the description. Now then, poetry books I've been reading and enjoying recently include Standing Proud, LGBTQ plus community anthology on themes of past, present and future from Bite Poetry Press and I can recommend Within Her Flesh, a poem by Kimberly Alice Ward. Next up, a book by a previous guest of the show, Lena Batchelor, Pearl Blades and Painted Silks. The Language of Fans, published by Black Pear Press, and illustrated throughout with beautiful images of fans throughout the ages, accompanied by beautiful poetry, such as White Rain, Komori, and Tales of an Elephant. Links to both of these books are in the description. Thank you for joining me on the Poetic Podcast. My name is Jay Rosanna, And I do hope you will join me again. Until then, bye-bye.